From National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As negotiators put the final touches on the climate change treaty this week in Morocco, some industrialized nations are still trying to soften the economic blow. Australia and Japan and Canada will be arguing for get-out clauses, essentially, and the more progressive countries, particularly the Europeans, will be trying to rein them back. The U.S., meanwhile, is still sitting on the sidelines, and some say that could hurt U.S. businesses. Also, first the buffalo vanished from the northern Great Plains. Now the prairie itself could be next if federal farm policies aren't changed. We don't own a business just for somebody to drive by on the road and say, isn't that cute, or there's a wildflower, shall we go pick it? People love the nostalgia. I like nostalgia. But who's going to pay for it? What's at stake in the upcoming federal farm bill? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, right after this.
This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Delegates to the United Nations Convention on Climate Change are gathered in Marrakesh, Morocco. Their task this time around is to find ways to implement details of the Kyoto Accord to fight global warming. The general principles were settled in Bonn, Germany last summer. The U.S. government pulled out of the talks in Bonn and is not participating in the current round either. The Bush administration says restrictions under Kyoto would hurt the nation's economy. But some analysts say that if the U.S. continues to sit on the sidelines, its businesses will lose a competitive edge. Jeremy Leggett joins me now. He's author of The Carbon War, Global Warming, and the End of the Oil Era. He also directs Solar Century, a solar power company in the United Kingdom, and says the treaty will change the global energy markets. One of the arguments that I think is so germane in all this is the argument of DuPont. DuPont, you might think, is a company that you know, might be tending to drag its feet over all this. That's not the case at all. And DuPont's argument to the Bush administration is, guys, you know, it's inevitable that one day we're going to have to join this show. And if you leave us out of it at this point, European and Japanese companies are going to be developing all the new technologies, getting all the efficiencies and cost reductions that come from saving energy, saving greenhouse gas emissions, and we're going to have to play catch-up. So you will place us in a situation of competitive disadvantage. There's a lot of talk about ratification here. That is, mm. and I believe that 55 countries representing at least 55% of industrial emissions have to sign up for this. For it to come into force, that's correct. What's necessary to be done in Marrakesh for that ratification process to go forward if it's going to go forward? Well, the real political game in Marrakesh will involve three countries who've been historically allies of the United States, Japan, Australia, and Canada. These are the foot-draggers now. I mean, they haven't gone so far as America and pulled out of the process. They've gone along with the rest of the world, but these countries need to ratify if we're to get that 55% of the emissions. And they're playing a game of brinksmanship, trying to squeeze as much latitude as they can to, for example, be allowed to count sinks, that is, forests, which can take carbon dioxide down out of the atmosphere and be offset against the cutting of emissions from the primary sources of fossil fuel burning, coal, oil and gas. So Australia and Japan and Canada will be arguing for get-out clauses, essentially, and the more progressive countries, particularly the Europeans, will be trying to rein them back. The public in the United States is very much focused on the horrific events of September 11th and Mm. the war in Afghanistan. What impact do those events have on this diplomatic process and this environmental summit on climate change? I think that um, it's lucky that the summit is going ahead at all. I mean, it's not just America that people are worried about these horrific events, of course. And if you look at how the geopolitics is playing out... I think that you can only see situations that are going to favour the uh, renewable micropower technologies at the expense of fossil fuel, particularly oil and gas. You can't imagine anything much more vulnerable to terrorism than oil and gas pipelines coming out of the new frontier area in the Caspian Sea. All of those are going to have to go through, shall we say, difficult countries. And then there's bigger geopolitics. There is a case that every bomb that falls on Afghanistan is throwing petrol on a fire that can lead to all sorts of reactions in the Muslim world, including the fall of the Saudi royal family. And that will introduce a whole new dimension in security threats, the threat to the security of supply in oil. And, you know, over here in Europe, I I don't know so much about the United States, but here in Europe, many people in the armed forces, uh, in politics, are saying as though global warming wasn't a a reason for speeding up the commercialization of these renewable micropower technologies, we've got a whole new dimension of reason for doing that now. And I think if we can move fast away from over-dependence on oil in the Middle East, you can also make a case that we're less likely to get into conflict situations that will breed more terrorists the way many people believe this bombing is doing currently in Afghanistan. Jeremy Leggett is author of The Carbon War, Global Warming, and the End of the Oil Era. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. The 
U.S. Congress is writing its first farm bill of the 21st century. Last time around, the goal was to wean farmers off crop subsidies. But a market collapse has left farmers without a safety net and more dependent than ever on the government. And some want to see crop subsidies restored. But others say the money might be better spent on conservation. Living on Earth's Anna Solomon Greenbaum visited South Dakota to find out how the farm bill could affect the land and the people there. That's the sound of corn working its way toward harvest in White Lake, South Dakota. Each one of these is a little piece of pollen and it has to touch the silk to fertilize the corn and each silk has to have a piece of pollen to make a kernel of corn. Carol and David Gillen walk me through one of their cornfields. Ten years ago, we'd be standing in grass and cows, but the Gillens, like many ranchers in South Dakota, have stopped ranching and started raising crops. The whole corn belt's moving west and is pushing the cattle out. The Gillens made the switch after comparing spreadsheets with farmers from around the state. The cow-calf guy, which we were doing, the last five years' profit of our farm was $4 an acre. And the last five years' profit of the grain operation, the grain farmer, was $25 to $35 an acre. David says the main reason farmers are outpacing ranchers is government price support for the crops they grow. The farm bill is written to protect the, the corn and soybean and wheat farmer and cotton farmer. So they're protecting us, so what do we do? We increase production. When we increase production, we create more bushels and lower the costs. The market price for grain has dropped so low in recent years, the government's been forced to bail farmers out. This year, $5.5 billion were doled out, a testament to the cycle of rural welfare. Not an ideal situation, David admits, but one he can raise his family on. Ranchers, meantime, get little in the way of government support. So when the financial thing starts folding up, when the cattle guy you know, sells out or does something, where the grain guy, he doesn't have to worry about a huge loss next year. He can just, at least he'll be able to maintain next year with the government help. Today's farm programs go back to New Deal legislation. Farmers who grew staples like corn, tobacco, and cotton formed a lobby powerful enough to convince Washington to support them. Livestock were not included, and the reasons to plant rather than graze grew stronger. And the subsidies kept flowing decade after decade. Now, half our grasslands are gone. The fertile, tall grass prairie is down to 1% of its original size. Medium and short grasses are declining too. All this on a continent where grass once covered the giant middle. And so, we've started doing what we usually do when we've run a fish down almost to extinction or mined a mountain until it's poisoned. We try to fix it. We've started replanting the prairie. Just west of David Gillen's farm is Dave Konechny's place. Dave grew up here. He raised wheat and oats and corn and 18 children, too. Now he's raising grass. Right now we're going to look at a planning that uh, was planned the 20th of June. Uh, Steve is going to do a status review. I need to look at it and do a status, how it's doing. Has the practice been successful? Steve Auk works for the Federal Agricultural Office that oversees conservation programs out here. He gets down on his knees, fingers the barely sprouted blades of grass. Most of what there is to know about the prairie, he says, you can't even see. The community of bacteria, fungus, living organisms like ants, they, they say that within a, a section of land, which the section is, is about 640 acres, there's probably more living organisms in that section of land than there are people in the whole world. This ground is enrolled in the government's conservation reserve program, which pays farmers to seed cropland back to grass. Dave's also involved in a program that helps his cattle graze the land more gently. Then there's WIP, the Wildlife Habitat Incentives Program. In the fall, Dave opens up his land to pheasant hunters, most from out of state. It's a lucrative business. Dave can take in about $4,000 a day during hunting season, and the government programs that help him help the grass also help the pheasants. This here is uh, big blue stem, Indian grass, and switchgrass. Dave's goal is to plant all his land back to native grass. It takes patience, he says, but where grass grows, it holds the soil, which keeps sediment, pesticides, and fertilizer from running into rivers, which protects drinking water. Native grasses help keep invasive species out. 
We need corn and wheat and soy, Dave says, but not everywhere. Tilling some of the fragile lands like this out here just doesn't look to me like it's, uh, it's good for, for the land. They say it takes 100 years to build an inch topsoil, and uh, you know, one good heavy thunderstorm can wash away an inch. So, But how do you begin to reverse a trend toward monoculture when monoculture is where the money is? Last year, the USDA spent more than $20 billion to help farmers grow crops. That's about 16 times what it spent conserving land. In South Dakota and across the nation, there's a backlog of farmers who want to join conservation programs, but not enough technicians or money to help them. Even if there were, it would be a game of catch-up. Every time one acre of South Dakota land goes into conservation reserve, almost half an acre in some other part of the state is newly plowed for crops. Grassland advocates want to see a new farm bill that stops the loss of prairie before it starts, and they're trying to be heard in Washington. There, the debate has turned bitter over which is more important, conservation or production. Those who know the prairie well, however, say conservation and production can coexist. Their meeting place is with the cows and the ranchers who keep them. According to Jim Headley, the secret to staying in ranching is to keep it simple. Like with this little tractor he drives around to save gas, Jim's won awards for good management. He runs 300 cows on about 3,000 acres of land, rotating them among his many fields. He keeps them out of new pasture with fencing. Now, when they move them into this area, that grass will grow back. If taxpayers knew more about farm programs, Jim thinks they'd rather pay for policies that support the land and the people on it. He says even well-intended programs like Conservation Reserve can go awry if they're misused. Some farmers have plowed up native grass and planted crops just so they could enroll it in the program and reseed it for government payments. It takes hundreds of years, if ever, for the new grass to function like the prairie it was before. Jim points out a neighbor's field, former cropland now idle in reserve. It's crowded with Canadian thistle, a noxious invasive weed. Across the road, in Jim's field, all we can see is grass. You see, that guy gets $40 an acre and I get nothing. See, if they, if they could change the program and say, okay, your cross-fencing, your rotational grazing is just as valuable as this CRP. You see what I mean? Jim likes one proposal he's seen in the Senate that would put more money into conservation on working lands. If it became law, Jim thinks he could get as much as $50,000 to help protect everything from wetlands to prairie dogs, work he now does for little in return. And, he says, the bill would help other ranchers who are on the edge of giving up. If we could turn the dollars around, in other words, if I could get a um, government payment on grass acres like I would for corn acres, and you go into your banker and you got a whole different scenario, most anybody can understand that. Ranchers may not warm easily to accepting government help. They are, by their own account, a hard-headed, independent bunch. And here he is, Cody Shockey, hometown cowboy, Tommy Boy. Jack Freeman is one of these ranchers. We're setting it face South Dakota, and this is the final day of their three-day rodeo. Jack is 72, with two gold teeth up front. His family came to South Dakota in the days when the grass seemed endless. Back then, ranchers just wanted to be left alone. But Jack says it can't work that way anymore. Not when a grain farmer can buy up grassland with government loans and turn it under for government payments. After the rodeo, we head out to his ranch with one stop on the way at a wheat farm planted a couple decades ago. Every time I get up on a high point at my ranch, even though I'm 15 miles away from this farm and the wind's blowing, I can see this dust cloud in the air 500 to 1,000 feet, and it's blowing away. It's not the first piece of ground that blew away, and it won't be the last. Jack grew up in North Texas during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Here in South Dakota, he's seen too much fragile land plowed under. Pick up the soil, he says. See how fine that is? Just throw a handful up in the air. The soil scatters like sand. For the prairie to survive, Jack says, 
government policy toward ranchers must change. Otherwise, people will scatter too. (laughs) It's Friday night at Ray's Bar and Grill in Highmore. This county's been hit hard by the dramatic conversion from grass to crop. Farms keep getting bigger, the people fewer. I remember when I was a kid, Saturday night, I mean, that was it. And now on Saturday, every business in town closes except the grocery store. Max Gregg is at the bar, nursing a beer and a gauze-wrapped hand he hurt in a farming accident. We've got at least 30,000, 40,000 acres in this county that are farmed by guys that pull in here with their own fuel trucks, their own groceries. They show up for, what, a week or two in spring and plant their grain, and a week and two in this fall. And they don't spend any money in this town. They, when there's all small farms, everybody bought everything in town. Ranchers can't keep up, Max says, with the rent prices crop farmers can afford. They don't get payments, and they can't get loans or insurance. He points to Mike, standing in the corner by the popcorn machine. Mike! He says Mike's hiding from me. Mike is the federal crop insurance agent. We want to know what federal crop has to do with this deal. Get up here and talk to her. Mike says he has to go home, but then he ambles over. Here he comes. He's been in crop insurance for more than 20 years. What's really changed the most is that the government subsidized more of the premiums, you know, and more people started growing crops and, well, breaking up more land and uh, getting better yields, and uh, it's been a good program for them. Whether crop subsidies continue to dominate farm policy rests now with lawmakers in Washington who are working on next year's farm bill. If it remains unchanged, more prairie and more ranchers will be lost. So far, the House has passed a bill that gives even more money to grain farmers. There's a little more money for conservation, too. But in the Senate, more radical changes are being proposed. One would replace crop payments with a system that would benefit almost all farmers, including ranchers, based on need and conservation practices, rather than on how many acres they plant. The Bush administration has endorsed this idea, but it warns, too, the budget left behind by September 11th may leave less money for farm programs. Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle wants to finish the farm bill soon, before the money disappears. We've got to make the economics of agriculture, especially small farm agriculture, better. The Majority Leader's home state is South Dakota, which means he's beholden both to ranchers and environmentalists who want more money for conservation, and to farmers who want more for their crops. On the way to the Rapid City Airport, Senator Daschle tells me that a new farm bill should set minimum prices for grain so farmers can rely more on the market and less on the federal government. And Congress, he says, has to stop letting the seed and chemical and equipment companies run farm policy. He admits that will take a revolution of sorts in the way he and his colleagues do business. Well, I guess that's the question, is how do you deal with the many conflicting pressures one feels? Sometimes I think we let the special interests or the ones with the biggest bucks or the greatest lobbying force uh, make, uh, at least uh, uh, indirectly, the decisions made by lawmakers in Washington. It's not just ranchers who get hurt by the expansion and concentration of agribusiness. Even farmers who benefit most from the farm programs, the ones who get crop payments and insurance and loans, they too are finding there's something being lost along the way. These leaves on the corn plant are starting to curl. They're protecting themselves in the heat. For David and Carol Gillen, survival means planting more acres every year. And those acres most often come from neighbors who had to sell. I ask Carol what that's like in a tiny community like White Lake. She backs away from my microphone. That's not time. <laughs> David smiles at her and explains. A piece of land comes up for rent. Three farmers round want it. And then there's hard feelings if two people doesn't get it and the other one does. The problem is the three farmers that are bid on the same land, if there's hard feelings, our wives see each other every day in town. We go to the same church. Our kids go to the same school. And it's, it's tough. It is tough. It's either expand or, or leave and go, go to the city and get a job. And some of us choose to expand because it's just taken more, more acres to provide a living for our families. In the weeks after my visit, Carol Gillen and I emailed each other. She'd tell me about the weather and how the harvest was going and about her eldest son, who jokes he can run a tractor 25 hours a day. She also asked that I not use the interview I did with her. She didn't want the neighbors to hear it. Later, though, she changed her mind. 
The farming story, she said, was too important not to tell. The story of farmers who feel they must choose between their livelihood and the prairie, between their livelihood and their community. Carol understands why people want rolling prairie to drive by and thriving little farm towns to visit. But she says those are myths people remember from books as children. It was that way a hundred years ago or a hundred and fifty years ago. But people bought this property and this land, and and this is our business. And we don't own a business just for somebody to drive by on the road and say, "Isn't that cute?" Or there's a wildflower. Shall we go pick it? People love the nostalgia. I like nostalgia. But who's going to pay for it? For living on Earth, I'm Anna Solomon Greenbaum. We leave you this week with sounds, mostly the sounds that birds make as they fly over or stop to rest in the prairie near Nebraska's Crescent Lake National Wildlife Refuge. Lang Elliott's recording comes with the following claim: No human sounds or electronic manipulations were used in this production. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Liz Lempert is our Western editor. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor, and Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the National Science Foundation, supporting environmental education, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for reporting on marine issues, the Educational Foundation of America for reporting on energy and climate change, the Oak Foundation supporting coverage of marine issues, the Turner Foundation. The W. Walton Jones Foundation supporting efforts to sustain human well-being through biological diversity. www.wajones.org, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation supporting coverage of Western issues. This is NPR National Public Radio.